told someplace that years ago there was in Oxford, England, a consortium, a seminar of sorts where these religious professors, comparative religion professors, got together and they were trying to discuss what it was that made Christianity different. What were the similarities between various religions and their differences? And as they debated, they wondered, well, is it resurrection? And some thought, well, there are other religions that have stories of resurrection. There are other religions about gods who come and become men, like incarnation. They puzzled, what is the distinguishing factor between Christianity and these others? Are all they all basically the same? And as they pondered these things, C.S. Lewis is reportedly said to have walked into the room and said, what's all the fuss about? What are you guys arguing about? And they say, we're trying to figure out what's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions. And in his concise and lithe way, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. That's easy, he said. It's grace. The one distinguishing factor between Christianity and all the other religions, the Buddhists in their eightfold path and the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jews with the covenant of the law with Muslims and their code of law, each of the religions of the world offers some way of earning one's approval with God. And Christianity stands alone by saying it's a fool's errand to try to earn God's approval He hands it over for free. In this passage that the Apostle talks about grace in, he helps us to understand that this really is the distinguishing factor and it's the best sort of relief-producing refreshment that any person anywhere can ever know. And so, let's look at what he starts to say. As for you, he tells this church... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in all those who are disobedient. He appears to be starting out with a savvy rehearsal of all that they used to be. Those wicked pagans out there. Those people who go out carousing People who cheat on their taxes and such. Taxes and wives, it don't matter. They get too many beers in them. They go nuts out there in the world. And just when you think he's talking about them, he says, all of us, all of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. And you realize this is the same Apostle Paul who in other places boasts about the fact that he had impeccable religious credentials. His spiritual resume was off the charts. Zealous for the traditions of his elders. Pharisaical in his keeping of righteousness. This was a man who had the pedigree to be marveled at in the eyes of religious people. And he said, as religious as I was, I was someone gratifying the cravings of my flesh. Which is another way of talking about this inbred God allergy, this this inclination within us that makes us prefer us to everybody else. 
that makes us think primarily about what we're not getting and not what we're giving. It makes us think primarily about how we're being not loved instead of how we're not loving. It's this preference for us over everyone else, this preference to do what we want without consideration for what anybody else wants. And Paul says, religious people and irreligious people, pious appearing people, and obviously God-ignoring people were all in the same boat. Like the rest, he says, we were objects of wrath. And as he spills this out, this rehearsal of who they were, he's trying to set up something, of course. And it's valuable to see what he's setting up because if you think about it for any amount of time, almost everybody you know, even if they've used the words of God's grace, they have a very hard time believing in it. Most people have this sort of operational religion that's much like what I heard a man saying to me recently. He was telling me about the storm. I was asking how he fared, and he was, I was thanking him for some help, and he said something like this to me. You know, if you do good, God will take care of you. If you do good, he will do good back to you. He was counting on this fact as he did good that God in turn spared his family. And... I was in a hurry, so I didn't want to get into a theological debate. So I nodded politely, as I do often, because I'm Southern. But as I went away, I started thinking, well, hold on a second. If you do good, God will take care of you? But please don't mention that to Job, because that's what the whole book of Job was written about. His friends said that same thing. Job... Everybody knows there's a philosophy called eudaimonism, if you ever want to read about it. Everybody knows in the ancient world that if you're living right, the ground balls are going to hop up into your glove, and your skin's going to be glistening, and you're going to be svelte as Pastor Eric. Oh, sorry. And your tires are not going to get flat, and your 401k is going to increase in value. Anybody knows that. If you do good, you'll get good. And so Job's life starts falling apart, and his friends say, Hello, McFly. What? You come clean with God. Confess your faults so you can get your stuff back, so you can get your family back on track. And Job continues to protest his innocence, and you know how the story ends at the end. God gets really mad at his friends because they misrepresented And of course, you can't tell Jesus. Please don't mention anything to Jesus about this notion that if you do good, God will do good to you. If you were Jesus, think about it. The only way you could process your life is, if I do good, God will destroy me. He will treat me as if I were a wicked person. So, Job tells us this. Jesus tells us this, and of course the Apostle is trying to tell us this as well, that there is no sense in starting to think like that, that God is going to somehow do good to me if I do good. If you think like that, then you're always going to be in this sort of calculus. You're going to become a theological statistician. 
trying to figure out how you measure up, looking for God to pull the rug out from you when you've screwed up, expecting that God's somehow going to give you a nice pat on the back and a pack of Skittles when you've done well. This is the reason, of course, that when evangelism explosion trains people in evangelism, they give these diagnostic tools. They say, go up to people and say, have you come to the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain if you were to die today? You don't have to use a radio voice, so you probably shouldn't. You know for certain if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. And people will say, I I didn't know you could know for certain things like this. And then you say, if God were to let you meet him at his gates of heaven and say to you, why should I let you in this place? What would you say? And nearly everybody who's unfamiliar with the ways of God's grace, who just sort of operates with what's native to their heart and their way of operating and what seems to be native to the way the world operates, will say something like this. I, on the jerk-o-meter factor, I'm a lot less of a jerk than other people. I've done a lot less jerky things than I have jerky ones. I'm a lot better than that guy. I do watch the evening news after all. There's a whole host of people that I'm quite sure I'm better than. People think in terms of some sort of scale. I've done more good than bad. And the apostle would disabuse us of all such notions because one, you get into a notion like that, two things are bound to happen to you. If you start to think that the way that you're going to get God to like you is you're going to do enough good stuff, you've got to outweigh your bad stuff with your good stuff, then if you think you're succeeding, you're going to be doing lots of good things and you're going to find contempt growing in you at other people. You're going to feel like you're a lot better than they are. Your hair is a lot shinier. Your skin's a lot smoother. God obviously likes you so much more than they because of all the good work you do. And then something bad will happen and you will go ballistic. We had a deal, God. After all I've done for you, and this is how you treat me? This is the thanks I get? And suddenly you realize, holy cow, I have set up some sort of remuneration plan with God whereby I think I do certain things and then he pays me. Wait a second. That's not grace. That's an employment arrangement. And what the apostle would have you see is like you don't want to get involved with an employment arrangement with God because by nature, you're not the sort of person who's ever really going to, on your own, do anything good for God. Not for the right reasons. You might do something good that will try to put him in your debt. You might do something good that will make him seem to owe you. But that's no real gift. That's not the kind of obedience that Jesus is after. So you could get really proud. Or the other thing that could happen is you get in this calculus of am I doing good or am I failing is that you can start to get really resentful about this God that you can't please. There's a lot of people that aren't here this morning, a lot of people who kind of don't want to have anything to do with God because they tried. They tried being good. 
And they weren't any good at it. And, and God was constantly on their backs, they thought. And so they just said, you know what? I'll be my own boss. I don't want to have anything to do with this. You can't forever try to please a coach who never can be pleased. So you quit. You fill up with despair. The apostle is trying to save you from either of those vacillations from extraordinary pride, crushing despair, by saying, you are really quite a bit more horribly bad than you ever thought you were. Merry Christmas. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. See, it's supposed to be a hope to realize Look, you cannot do enough good to get this God to like you. It's a relief. In fact, some of you, the best thing you could do is to try really hard. The only people who know they're bad are those who have tried hard to be really good. One of the things that happened to me in seminary as I was constantly immersed in the Scriptures and constantly immersed in the lives of great followers of Jesus as I was constantly looking in this mirror that was showing me how despicable I was. And the harder I tried, the more exhausted I got, and the more defeated I felt. But see, the thing is, is you're by nature an object of wrath. It's by grace you've been saved. God looks at you and says, I know all about you. You will never measure up. Welcome. I know all about you, but I want you. See, that's what grace is. It's a gift. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, grace is a unrepayable but deeply motivating gift that annihilates boasting and creates astonishing beauty. And one of the ways it creates this beauty is it does annihilate the need for boasting. Because see, you know what we do? We believe we're saved by grace. We're Presbyterians. It's one of our best things. But we treat grace in some ways like this fella that I met the other day. I, I saw him the other day. I was pulling into a meeting and I saw this pristine Beautiful convertible, 1979 red Fiat. It's an awesome car that I would have to have a shoehorn to get in. But I was talking to this guy and, and commending this fellow for the <clears throat> excellent restoration work he had done. And I said, do you drive the car a lot this time of year when it's nice? And he says, you know, no, not really, just on the weekends because it's got antique tags. And in Tennessee, if you have antique tags, you're only allowed to drive it on the weekends. And I thought that is a good description of a very beautiful thing called grace that we sometimes might leave just here on the weekends. But see, God means for grace to be an everyday wear type of thing. It ain't no tuxedo. It's khakis and a white shirt. It's what you wear every day. It's the air you breathe. 
And what happens to you when you start to breathe in God's grace? One thing that will happen. Pretense will start to drop away from you. Because you'll realize that you're not having to build any sort of record for yourself. You're not having, there's nothing to boast about. You don't have to defend anything. Some of you are quite angry right now at people very close to you. And here's why. There's a lot of reasons why, but it's not just because they're so thoughtless. You're angry because you have rejected God's grace, even though you think you believe it. And you're trying to be good enough, maybe by making your children look good enough, or by being a good enough mom or dad, or by being good enough at the office, so that you will justify your existence. And no matter how hard you try, you might be putting out a certain poster image out there, but you can't escape this inward condemnation, this hypocrisy that you feel. You know that you know the real story. You're trying to make them think another story because you think that your existence depends on how you can somehow make a name for yourself by what you're able to do or what you're able to refrain from doing. And so you get angry inside. And you're mad at everybody around you. And you think it's all their fault. But it's not. It's not their fault. It's just that you haven't taken grace out from the garage and let it become your everyday environment to live in. See, if you start to realize, hey, look at here. I cannot be good enough to make God want me, love me, like me, or keep me. Then all of a sudden you don't have to go around pretending you're better than you are. You can be honest about yourself. That's why one of the things that starts happening to people when they get awakened by grace, he talks about you were dead in sins, you were made alive. What do children do when they are born into the world? They're noisy. They scream. Get me back in there. It's cold. Okay, they don't talk. But they sure do scream. It's disorienting when you come alive. When you leave the comfort and you move out into the world, it's disorienting, it's scary, it's frightening. But that's what grace starts to do. It awakens people. And if you go to AA, they'll tell you that you're only as sick as your sickest secrets. Most of us are bound by all sorts of secrets. We're bound by all sorts of posturing and posing. We're trying to present a certain case to the world because we're trying to justify our existence by what we do. And if you start to believe that it doesn't matter what you do, it matters what Jesus has done for you, then all of a sudden you don't have anything to defend, and all of a sudden you can start to be honest. You can share your secrets. There's no fortress of yourself to have an army around. You don't have to get so mad if someone says about you what's already true. Someone says, you're such a hypocrite. And you could say, I know! Isn't it wonderful? I am a hypocrite. I'm far worse than that. You have no idea how, how happy I get when bad things happen to other people. You have no idea how much I love my own comfort at the expense of other people's comforts. 
I sometimes don't even think about them. Which makes me the kind of candidate for grace. I need lots of it. Bukus of it. I'm like a person whose oxygen doesn't work right. I need, I need a direct hit of God's grace constantly flowing into me all the time. Or I'm never going to be anything like what God would want. But man, you start to realize that. You start to believe that it's a gift that God gives. His favor is a gift. His salvation is a gift. It's the kind of thing that annihilates all your boasting. It helps you kind of accept who you are. It helps you start to be able to accept other people because you're just not judging them all the time because you're not in competition. The reason we're judging people all the time is because they, they show us up. The reason it's hard to be excited about the excellent mothering of another mother is that her excellent mothering makes you look not so good. And the reason I'm not overly excited when somebody tells me what a remarkable preacher someone else is it's like, well, if they're an awesome preacher, what about me? But if you're the person, a person, who God has looked at and said, I want you, and I know all about you, and you're secure, you're pre-loved. I know your secrets. My grace is, is anesthesia. It, it, it helps you to face the reality that you can't normally bear by yourself because you know you're safe. See, uh, Steve Brown, my former professor, used to say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. You're jogging down the road, you see a nice pasture, there's a fence, there's a turtle plopped right on top of that post, four feet off the ground, now, I'm not a naturalist, but I do not think that turtles can jump. They're not very good climbers. They're not even very fast. Children can catch turtles. And you see one on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. And the apostle's saying, look, it would be foolish for a turtle on that fence post to start bragging to the cows in the pasture. Why are you guys so low? Look at me. Look at me. I got some mad hops. If that turtle is boasting somehow, if that turtle is evaluating himself compared to others being on top of that fence post, knowing good and well he didn't put himself there. And the apostle is saying, look, if you want to be the people of God, you've got to breathe deeply God's grace. You've got to believe that it is purely a gift that gets his favor. He just hands it over to you because that's what he does. He punishes, sure, he punishes the Savior for you. And now you move out into the world as God's workmanship, his magnum opus, with nothing to prove, just something to demonstrate. You're demonstrating that you've been incredibly accepted. It makes you a secure person. It makes you not have to try to outshine other people. It makes you able to give credit to other people. It makes you not so defensive and filled with blame. We're going to come in a minute to the Lord's table, and I want to close with this. Because if you start to, 
if you start to believe that this grace is something that's actually for your everyday life, it really will, it'll be an enormous relief to every aspect of you. There's a story that Philip Yancey told about one time in his church they had this program where they would do babysitting for single moms or for married moms and dads. They could drop off their kids and they'd come back later and get them. And the pastor of his church came back to pick up his three-year-old son. And the babysitter told the pastor, you know, when we were playing together, we asked your son, what's your mom's favorite thing to do? And the three-year-old, without hesitation, said, my mom's favorite thing to do is to clean me up. She's always washing me. He had been subject to many spit napkins getting things off his face. I made that up. So, the pastor, though, as he thought about that, there's a lot of moms out there who like to wash kids, make sure they look just right. And he said, the next week, he said, you know what? My wife Janice, it's not that she likes to clean him up so much. It's the cleaning up is an excuse for holding him close. She just likes to be close to him. And see, one of the remarkable things, if you should start to believe it, is that God wants you close. So you can admit the dirt you've got, and you've got to say, you have to clean me. You'll become a kind of person who prays frequently and often as you breathe in this grace. Like Steve Brown said of his mother when she was dying. She was in a coma and she was fighting. They were trying to hold her down. And as they were holding her down, this big nurse and he was and someone else, she was crying out, Oh God, please help me not to be bitter. She's in a coma. Please help me not to hold a grudge against anyone. Oh God, please help me to love. And the nurse looked at him and said, I've heard him cuss and I've heard him scream, but I never heard him pray. If you start to realize that you're the kind of kid who needs constantly to get cleaned up, you're the kind of guy like Augustine who tells God, hey God, command me whatever you will, only grant what you command. You're going to find yourself calling out to this God and running to Him often because you know He likes you. And He's not disgusted with you. He wants to create such a thing of beauty in you that you can't boast. And the world can't help but look and say, wow, i got to get me some of that grace. That's what He feeds us here in this meal. That's how we can come to confess before Him. So take your bulletins. Let's pray. We're going to prepare ourselves for the Lord's table.